Father, we are yours, bought by the price Jesus paid on the cross. And so we thank you and we worship you. May we worship you now by listening and obeying your word. We pray your word would change us today. We pray for sanctification, that your word would plan itself in us and that truth would change us and make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this for those of us who've been Christians forever, and we pray this for those who are not even believers. We pray your word would come powerfully to them, convict them of sin, call them to trust in Christ alone who provides true righteousness, true payment for sin, and true power over sin and death. Grant them the faith they need to follow him. Grant them the repentance they need to go after him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It is a true blessing to be with you today. I was honored last week to preach at a couple of different chapels on joint base there, some very historic and special places, but nothing, absolutely nothing beats being home with my local church body and preaching to you. So I'm always amazed. I, I've said this before. I'm always amazed at how many of you come out to listen to me talk for 40, 45 minutes every week and uh, just bore yourself to tears as you sit there. But I think it's because of the power of God's Word, and it's uh, in this place, and it's with you. Your Bibles are open to 1 Peter. We continue today our look at a series of instructions that Peter gave to the elect exiles about how to live in this world, how to live in this world among folks who are lost, who have don't, don't have any love for the Word of God or for God at all. And in short, he says, we are not to be snobby, we are not to be superior, we're not to be self-willed or problematic. Yeah, this would be a great temptation, wouldn't it? We're around all these lost people. Some of them know how to push our buttons, and we might be tempted to pridefully assert ourselves as the moral authority, to feel that we're somehow superior because Christ has saved us. But Peter says, don't be like that. We are not to be rebels. We're not to be problematic. We're not to be self-willed and superior. We're not to be indifferent or disrespectful. What are we to be? We are to be submissive. And that's the word he repeats at the beginning of each one of these sections. Be submissive to civil authorities. That's chapter 2, verse 13. Be subject, word hupotasso, be submissive, be subject to all the human institutions. Submit to the authorities, submit to the government, submit to the rulers. It's going to be tempting, especially this time of American history, to look at our vile politicians and just say, forget it. I have no need or desire to follow these people or submit to them. Peter says, don't do that. Honor the emperor. Peter then gets a little more personal. What about your masters? What about your lost bosses and people over you? The people around you, work with you, maybe even not directly over you, but have some level of authority. What's your definitive and your distinctive attitude as a Christian? What's your demeanor? You are, again, submissive. Even to those masters who are evil to you, you show honor and deference. That's the attitude of a Christian in a lost world. It is a kind, submissive, gentle, honors everyone, even those whom you know are not good people. Well, what about something even more personal? All the way in the home. You think that early church face some of the same things we do in the home where one spouse is saved and the other is not? You better believe it. 
There were spouses unequally yoked, just like there are today. Husbands married to unsaved wives, wives married to unsaved husbands. There were many in that day, just as there are today. In fact, by my own observation, there seem to be more believing wives married to lost men. Maybe this is loosely related to 1 Timothy 2.15. It says a woman would be saved through childbearing. seems like women are more sensitive to truth, more spiritually aware in general revelation sort of way, just simply more inclined to the things of God than men are. But in my own anecdotal evidence, it seems like there are more women married to lost men than there are saved men married to lost women. And maybe that's at least one small reason why Peter gives us six verses here for ladies and only one verse for men. could also be that men are pretty simple beings. You can't handle more than one verse. Just give them one thought. They're a little so, uh, a little slow. Uh, you know, someone told, asked me, where would men be without women? You know the answer to that. Garden of Eden. I'm just kidding. That's a terrible joke. I shouldn't repeat jokes that you crazy people tell me. Well, for the next few weeks, we're going to look at these seven verses. And as I study the passage today, there's a lot of cultural things and things we need to work through so it's going to take us a few weeks to work through these seven verses, and I hope this will be a blessing to you. Let me read to you 1 Peter 3, 1 to 7. Just follow along as I read out loud. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy woman who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. And Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm looking over at this congregation, and I see some of you ladies. You're sitting next to a husband, and your husband is here because of your faithful, loving, submissive, gentle, even quiet witness to him. He saw truth and grace in you and came along eventually and got saved. My point in telling you that is that we have a living illustration among us in our congregation of this very passage, of ladies who showed grace and kindness and weren't nagging and disrespectful to their husbands who were lost, and eventually those husbands saw that the gospel of Christ actually means something, it actually affects the way they live, and that drew them to Christ. Now, that's not to deny that they made their own decision. That's not saying that there's some sort of a uh, toast husband who just does what his wife told, but that is saying that this is a means that God uses to save His people, namely men. 
God uses submissive wives to save men, and this is precisely the point that Peter is making. Now, it's this beautiful picture of that, and we see it in our own congregation. We can't deny that these verses are true just by looking around us. Now, before we jump into this passage, we need to spend a few minutes just giving a little bit of a prelude to this, because this is such a sensitive and even cultural subject, and it deserves a little bit of this preamble as we move in. Uh, First thing I want to do is to tell you I'm not going to be specific about rules and regulations of how a woman is submissive to her husband. You notice that Peter is not specific here. He gives some broad ideas, some broad parameters, and he just leaves it up to each wife and each marriage to sort of figure out what this is going to look like in a specific way. He doesn't say, for instance, now, wives, you know, in order to be submissive, you cannot drive the chariot. Only men should drive the chariots. Wives, you understand you cannot handle the money. Only men can handle the money. He doesn't break this down into personal application. He gives us some broad applications. He gives us some broad motivations. And so I want to be careful in that. The the way that each family applies this is going to be different. And and, and this is according to not just uh, the difference in terms of uh, how we think, but the difference of our personalities, right? Some marriages, the husband is the talker. He's loud and funny and uh, out in front. I won't mention Spencer Reevely by name, but there's someone pastor in our church who is like that. Um, And then other families, the lady laughs a lot and is loud and tells joke. I won't mention Karen Hockett by name, but, and the husband's more of a quiet person. That's just the way we're wired, right? And, And these rules, these general encouragements, these broad instructions apply to all of us. We can live this out even in our different personalities. And that helps us understand too, because we don't need to judge each other. Right? We don't need to get in this, this you know, legalistic mentality where we have this list of what it means to be submissive, and it's very precise, and uh, you know, we look at this other family, and by golly, they're not doing exactly the way my wife and I are doing it, and, and therefore she's not submissive, or therefore he's, he's uh, not being the leader he should be. We shouldn't do that. Uh, these are broad encouragements. They're broad enough that all of us should be able to employ them, no matter what personality we have, no matter what kind of mix of relationship we have in our marriages. We ought to be able to do this and not judge one another as to the specifics. A second thing I want to mention, just to keep our minds focused in this time, this is not a full discourse on Christian marriage, right? This is not just, it's not even a breakdown as much as uh, Ephesians is a breakdown, Ephesians 5. This is a brief mention. In fact, the focus is more on uh, uh, saved wives who are married to lost husbands, This is not just a full discourse. We're going to get some of this. In fact, uh, it even applies it. He starts out and says that wives should be submissive even if some of your husbands are not saved. So the idea is that this applies to everybody, and it applies even to those who are married to men who are not saved. So this does apply. These principles do apply to all ladies who are married, uh, but it's not a full conjugation of uh, what Christian marriages look like. This is not a marriage seminar. This is not a breakdown you know, of, of all that marriage should be. You have to look sort of the whole counsel of the Word of God to discover all those things. This is just a, a brief instruction, and uh, we'll spend a few weeks looking at this. The third thing I wanted to mention is, uh, as Peter wrote this, I believe he wrote this with some specific temptations in mind temptations that would be 
alluring to a, a Christian woman who's married to a lost man. And um, as I thought about this, I just thought, yeah, that, I, I've seen this in my own ministry. I've seen ladies struggle being married to a lost man. I've seen ladies who struggle and sometimes fall into temptation. So I thought of several. I thought maybe we ought to keep these in mind, or maybe there's more you could probably think of, but I thought there's several temptations that probably will help us understand what he's addressing here. The, the, the context here is this woman gets saved, and God brings her out of darkness into his marvelous light, and she starts realizing as her, her conscience and her mind begins to be sanctified and the truth begins to grip hold of her, she begins to realize how vile and sinful and even pagan her husband is. And she sees this and she watches this awful man doing his awful things. And then she goes to church and she looks around at all these wonderful men who love Jesus. These men who worship and sing and lead their families well. They're worshiping, they're teaching. And suddenly she might find herself a little discontent in her marriage. She might find herself envious of other women who are married to men of God. And I think this is something of an encouragement for ladies who may struggle with that temptation. If you're married to a lost man, perhaps that's a struggle you could attest to. You could say, yeah, that, that's a temptation. And this instruction here does not uh, address this specifically, but in broad ways it shows us that you can uh, turn your attention back to your husband, even though he's lost, and love him in a godly way. You can still submit to him even though he's lost. You can still live as a Christian wife even though your husband is not a Christian. Another temptation, it may not be to have improper thoughts like that about other men, but it might be just to grow cold and indifferent to your husband. Now, if you won't accept my God, if you're not going to play ball with me and, and respect my religion and follow me in my religion, well, I'm just going to sleep downstairs from now on. I don't have anything to do with you. You're bugging me. You irritate me. Your, your, your constant sinful pursuits. I just, I just don't respect you. I'm just going to sort of part ways and live separate life than you. I'm going to do my thing, and you're going to do your thing. Indeed, that's the way that lost people stay married. Did you know that? Lost people, by and large, it's not universally true, but by and large, lost people who stay together, marriages who stay together for a long time, basically, they've just figured out how to live two separate lives and come together conjugally once in a while, but there's really just sort of two separate lives, both of them pleasing themselves. Now, ladies, that may be a temptation for you as a Christian woman married to a lost man, but... Peter's instruction here helps you not to do that. I don't want to do this. I don't want to live that way. I can actually live in a happy, healthy marriage with my lost husband. No, it's not the perfect picture of marriage as uh, it's pictured like by Paul in the Bible, but it is, a, it is a marriage that I can honor God in. Another temptation that I have seen ladies in my own ministry fall into is that they begin to think that ultimately it's up to them to get their husband saved. They think that Peter's instruction here is to tell them, like, do everything you can to get your husband saved. And that is not what Peter's saying. You've misinterpreted this passage. This is what has led some ladies to endless, perpetual war with their husbands. They're frustrated. They're constantly nagging them about salvation, constantly putting it in front of him. You're not saved. I am. You're not good. You're not going to heaven. I am. And she makes the marriage out of her insistence and nagging, makes the marriage a, a war zone. It's interesting, in um, 1 Corinthians 7, you don't have to look there, but in 1 Corinthians 7, there's this 
this picture of a lady who's married to a lost man, and Paul is addressing different combinations of lost men and lost women married to uh, save people and how to respond. And the instruction there in 1 Corinthians 7, 12 to 15, he basically says, ladies, if you're married to an unbeliever and that unbeliever is willing to stay married to you and, and live with you, then, then let them. You ought to be there. You ought to be happy that your marriage can stay together. But then he goes on to say, if they leave, let, if they want to leave, let them leave. That is to say, I believe, what I don't want is a, is a warlike marriage. What I want is peace. You don't fight that person. You say, well, don't I, shouldn't I fight for my marriage? And in some sense you should, but if you're fighting him for your marriage, that's just driving him away. And Paul said, let them go. You are free, and I believe that means free to remarry. Marriages don't heal just because one person is fighting. It takes both people fighting together for the sake of that institution, not fighting one another to stay together. Now, Peter's giving them a vision of this unequal marriage, and this unequal marriage is marked by a wife who is gentle and kind and submissive, not a wife who is constantly at war with her husband. Don't fall into that temptation. So there are some temptations I wanted to cover. One more very important part of this uh, prelude is I want to take a moment to give a little bit of historic context, which I believe explains why, ultimately, why there are more verses here to Christian wives married to lost husbands rather than the other way around. In the first century, when a husband became a Christian and his wife did not, well, not much in terms of the natural order of the family would have changed. Things would have generally remained the same. The husband remained the leader of the family. There would be little temptation for him to suddenly switch roles. There would not be the temptations even that I just mentioned, or at least not in the level of temptation. If anything, the husband would be in the process of sanctification. He would grow more respectful, more loving, and caring for his lost wife. I, I read this week that, a statistic that shocked me. I don't know how genuine the statistic is, but uh, I didn't look at the primary resources. But it said that 90% of saved men married to lost women, 90% of them see their wife come to Christ. Wives married, Christian wives married to lost men, only about 30% of them see their husbands come to Christ. And that just speaks to the natural order of the family, the natural order of human beings. When a husband is saved and the wife is not, it does not break the order. It does not tempt him to, to you know, switch roles and change the whole dynamic of the family. However, if a wife is saved first, you can imagine that sudden dilemma that she's in. Again, this may explain why there's more verses here. She's, she's got a greater task. She's got a, a bigger dilemma than a husband, a Christian husband married to a lost wife. She's got a bigger dilemma than he does. The wife becomes a Christian. She may instantly feel some sense of, of superiority, at least in a spiritual sense, a moral sense. She may watch him and she sees his his unbiblical parenting, his poor use of money perhaps. She may watch him and, and see his bad language or his, his just improper use of time. And very quickly, she may feel like she should impose her Christian morals, her new, impose her newfound biblical worldview on her husband. Let me tell you, most guys wouldn't take kindly to that. Most fellows are going to bristle at his wife coming home with a new worldview from this weird group of people at a church and 
bossing him around and telling him he should live differently. And let me tell you, in the Greco-Roman culture, it was unthinkable that a wife would have a different religion than her husband. So this dilemma is clear. This dilemma is a huge dilemma. This struggle is huge. And again, if, if that day is anything like this day, there's probably, there were probably more women who were in the church who were married to lost men than the other way around. I read a little article this week about the ancient idea of patria potestas, is the Latin patriarchy to the extreme. A woman's father... And then whoever would marry that woman would have legal power over her life. It was possible that he could even kill her or have her killed and face no legal repercussions because almost like a master and a slave, he was considered her owner. I'll be very clear here. Christianity did not embrace or reflect that mentality at all. Jesus and Paul and others openly rejected that. Think of Paul in Galatians 3.28. There's no male, female, slave, free, Jew, Gentile. We are all one in Christ. We're all equal. You know, we thought about this a little bit when we talked about slaves. You know, what, what's the dilemma for a slave? He's, he's suddenly going to church and maybe his master goes to the same church and in the context of employee-employer, he's under him, but then he goes to church, and they're equals before God. They're the same before God. And this must have caused some or no little amount of dilemma for these lady, ladies who suddenly realized, I'm equal with my husband in terms of human and being made in the image of God. I'm, I'm not confined to this cultural patria potesta. I, I'm I'm someone who has equal value before God. I want you to get this in your mind. The Bible does not reject the notion of authority structure and roles. You should know that by now in 1 Peter, right? We've gone through authority structure and roles, authority structure and roles. And here we are again, authority structure in the family and roles. The Bible does not reject authority structure and roles. The notion of complementary roles is embedded in Scripture. Now, that Latin patriarchal system was built on a philosophy that says your role equals your value. If your role is the role of wife, you're instantly, according to that system, of lesser value. If you're a child, it's even less than that. If your role is the role of husband, well, you're on top of it all. You're far more important and far more valuable than anybody else in the family. And you should never be challenged in terms of that authority. Why? Because role equals value. That was that old system. Ironically, much of the women's lib movement is based on that very notion, that role equals value. They are taking the same idea of these patriarchal systems of old and applying it today. They're saying role equals value. Therefore, because I'm of equal value, I must be allowed and I must demand the same role as men. In fact, it's gotten to the absurd point that I must be a man. I must not only do what men do, I must be able to become a man. You notice that in the feminist movement, they don't 
demand the jobs of bricklayers and roughnecks who work on oil rigs. What do they demand? They want to be CEO. They want authority. They want power and money. Why? Because the base system is that role equals value. They reject the idea of authority structures. They reject the idea that there should be some sort of system in place that keeps order, even, even if it's among lost people. They reject that. We demand a different role. We demand to be told that there is no roles in any society. There ought to be some sort of anarchy here. But again, the irony is that's the exact same attitude as the patriarchal systems of old, even the most oppressive of patriarchal systems. No, Peter says, there are roles that we all have. There is authority structures that we all should be, uh, we all should be a part of and respect those in society, in church, in the family. There ought to be structures even in this home. And because we see, see roles as beautiful and complementary of one another, and they are equal in terms of their value and importance to the family and to the, the society, to Christ and the church, we're not going to do what people do in terms of rejecting this idea. We accept the idea of authority structures. We embrace the idea, even if it's with lost politicians or lost masters, even a lost spouse. We understand that authority structures bring order to society, bring order to the family, bring order to the church, bring order to the workplace. We understand that must happen. We don't reject authority. We reject the notion that our value is based upon what role we play in those systems. Submitting to authority is one way that we submit to God. We show our submission to God by submitting to the role that He's given us. And we submit to our marriage relationships for the same reason, because we submit to God ultimately. It's an act of worship, not some stamp of approval on some godless system. For ladies who want to trust in God in this, you just say, Lord, you are sovereign. You could have saved both of us before we even met each other. You could have saved both of us early in marriage, but you chose, you're in charge of everything, and you chose to have me married to a lost man. I don't know what your purpose is, but it's going to bring about my sanctification. It's going to bring about your glory. And perhaps what may happen is exactly what Peter talks about in this verse, and that is perhaps my husband will one day be saved. Now, how are you going to do that? As usual, Peter, the structure is not very linear here. He doesn't have a straightforward argument like Paul does in a lot of his letters. Peter's is always a little more sloppy. Um, I think a great way to think about this passage is he has these, these parentheses of motivation. At the beginning, there's a motivation, and toward the end, there's a great motivation on why wives should submit to their husbands. And in the middle, it sort of fleshes it out in terms of action. So I'm going to take those two ideas, motivation and then method, and uh, I think this week we're just going to do the first point, motivation. So write this down if you want. Number one, divine motivation. Divine motivation. You're going to look at these two ideas. He presents one at the beginning, one toward the end. I think both of these are godly motivations, ladies, for you to embrace this idea, this submission. The first and obvious divine motivation is that you would demonstrate the gospel truth in your life. 
In, in other words, you're demonstrating that you know who God is and that your hope and trust is in God ultimately, that you submit ultimately to Him. And the, the reason you submit to your husband is because you submit to God. And God has told me I should submit to my husband. And, and you respect God so much that you work hard at that. And that should speak to your husband that she takes so seriously the commands of God that she is respecting me and submitting to me. Look there at verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. And that's the same word that's used in those prior passages, submit. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Something to see there. Clearly, this passage is all about living with a lost husband, but the first phrase, it just includes all wives, all wives, all in one group. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. And then there's a subgroup, even if some of them don't obey the word. So this is instruction, like I said, yes, it is all about save people living in a lost world, living with lost authorities, living with people around you who are lost. That's the primary thrust and primary direction of this passage. But he includes all wives in this initial instruction, so I think all wives can gain to learn from it, and we'll see this as for men as well as we look into the next, uh, into verse 7. The implication is that all ladies should take notes, learn about this, study this, make this their way of life, embrace that this is what God has given them. Now, Peter gives us a little play on words there. These husbands who do not obey the word will be one without a word. Now, this is not saying, ladies, that you don't ever have to share gospel truths with your husband. It's saying the same thing that we've seen all along with government, with civil authorities, with bosses and masters. All people are saved by the testimony about Christ, the spoken word about Christ. But the confirmation of that message is a godly, quiet, ordered, submissive life. Respect of others, not rebellion. That's what testifies to the gospel. Godly conduct is the stamp of gospel authenticity. Let me say that again. Godly conduct is the stamp of gospel authenticity. These unsaved husbands have rejected the word, which implies that they have told them the word, but they've rejected it. But what authenticates the gospel is not more words, not more nagging. It's godly conduct. And in this context, it's submission. Now, you all know I live in a family of seven. Six of them are women. <laughs> I have two dogs, both male, John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul, and uh, they don't say much. Uh, but I have sat on the couch and I have watched and been sitting there and seen that four out of the six ladies speaking all at one time. Now, simple math tells you this should be impossible. Usually there's a speaker and a listener. Well, ladies are gifted with words. Ladies are good at that, and I think a temptation might be more words. If I could just say it the right way at the right moment, you're reading your Bible, you're studying your Bible, you're praying for your husband that he'd be saved, and it dawns on your mind, ooh, I've got a phrase, or I've got a verse, I've got a way. I'm going to tape this verse 
on, on his speedometer so that he's going to see it every day. I'm going to make sure that he, he sees this. I'm going to talk to him. I'm going to nag him about this. Peter says, you've given him the word. He's rejected it. Now use your life as a testimony of the gospel. Now win him over without words. Use your attitude and your action, actions to demonstrate that you've come into God's marvelous light. Hupotasomenai, subject yourself, submit yourself to your husband. And we're going to define this more later, especially when it gets into the method, sort of the meat of the passage. What does submission look like? Peter has a lot of practical words here. Again, not super specific. It can be applied to all of us, universally applicable. But what he's pointing here is to the objective or to the motivation that the gospel truth is authenticated in the way in which you live. That's the theory behind all of this. That's a theory in the last two sections, that your life would authenticate the gospel message. That's the driving philosophy of being a wife, that your life would demonstrate the gospel. Your prime directive is not submitting to some ancient patriarchy or acquiescing to some humanistic system. It is the gospel truth being made clear in the way in which you act, the way in which you submit. Submission makes that happen is in, the way, in this way, it, be, it announces that your trust is ultimately in God. That you understand that every rule, every authority is given by God. It, it preaches a sermon to your husband. Without any words, it preaches to him that you trust all the authorities that God has put in place. You may not trust them as a person. You may not trust what the government's doing or your bosses are doing. You may not even believe exactly what your husband's doing, but you recognize that God put him as your authority in the marriage. And so you submit to that family authority because you trust in God. And actually, more than a boss or a civil authority, your husband will know this much more directly than anybody else. He'll know your heart. He'll see how genuine your love is for him and for God and that you're doing this all out of a love for God. You understand authority. You respect authority. You submit to this system that God has put in place. You understand this. One of the reasons I love pastoring this church is this church is a great reflection of this island in that 30 or even 40% of us are military. And one great thing about working in a church that's got a lot of military folks is they understand authority. They understand, and they're not here to challenge. Uh, I was in a church before, and there was no concept of authority. It was every man for himself. And I came here, and it was like landing on a, on a pillow. It was so nice. It was a soft landing for me to come to this church and realize people aren't here to challenge and shake their fist at the church authorities and be angry with the pastor and always challenge and gripe with and contend with. There's just a natural understanding in this church, and this is not just for the military folks. I think just church in general, this is how this church has been since the day I got here, actually many years before that, and Lena could probably tell you that, they, how nicely they treat the, the pastors of the church. And, and ladies, that's, that's essentially what he's saying. He, he, he's, uh, Peter's telling you, listen, I want you to, to, to provide a context that your husband comes home to and is with that's not this contentious, rebellious, challenging, make this a soft place for him to land. 
Make your marriage a great place for him to be in. Make this to be a pillow for him. When he comes home, it's this soft thing that he enjoys. He loves being married to you because you understand authority. And ultimately, he'll understand this is not out of a dedication to some patriarchal horrible system. This is out of dedication to God. So that's the first and primary divine motivation. You want to demonstrate gospel truth in your actions and attitudes. You want to to preach the gospel in such a way uh, uh, in your actions that it would would coincide with what you've said in your words. Second motivation is this, to join a host of the women of God, holy women of God. Peter gets this to this toward the end. Did you notice it? Verse 5, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So, I want you to notice this. Peter is not anchored in anything cultural of that day, the Greco-Roman. He didn't care anything about that. He went dozens of cultures before thousands of years before to an ancient wife and and talked about these ladies who live one after the other, generation after generation who live the same way. He's not anchored in some local customs or local culture. He's anchored in the truth of Scripture. And he goes back and he takes one of the most prominent wives of all time, the wife of Abraham, Sarah. And he says, I want you ladies to endeavor to be Sarah's children. I want you to to live up to that divine bloodline. What did Sarah do? Well, it says she hoped in God. These ladies, they hope in God. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Their their submission to their husband is, is out of a trust and a love for God. They submitted not because of, again, some misogynistic system of that day. They were not bowing to some false system. They were bowing to God. They submitted and trusted in God. They were Holy women set apart for God. They hoped in God. They trusted in God. How do they trust in God? In verse 5, by submitting to their own husbands. And Sarah is this prime example. Her hope was in God. Her trust was in God. So if her driving philosophy was submit to, to, to submit to her husband, I have a trust in God, what did that produce in her life? One thing it says, it says Sarah obeyed her husband. Verse 6, now this makes some of you ladies bristle. But again, this is not talking about some servile relationship like Sarah was some sort of slave that was bossed around. Not at all. You read the story of Abraham and Sarah. That's not their relationship. In fact, this is a wonderful illustration. I think Peter picked it on purpose. Where does Sarah obey Abraham and call him Lord? Well, you don't have to turn there. It's Genesis 18, specifically verse 12. You're you're going to hear something that is not at all like what outsiders looking at conservative Christians say about us. They say that we want to beat our wives down and we want to keep them in submission and keep them barefoot, make sure their heads never raise up 90 degrees. We want to make sure they stay at home and don't do anything. That's not at all what we see here pictured in Scripture. What, What is this from? What is this illustration from? This is when Abraham came to Sarah... And he said, God wants us to be intimate with one another because he's going to give us a child. And what did Sarah do? She laughed. This is absurd. 
she laughed. That's why they called the child Isaac, laughter. She laughed. But still, what did she do? She obeyed him and she respected him, calling him Lord. She obeyed and she, she was not a, a, a mindless slave. She laughed. There was, you know, she probably said something like this, you know, Abraham, you've come to me for intimacy a lot of times, but this is a, this is a new excuse. I'm a little too old for, uh, a little too old for kids. But she went ahead and she obeyed and she respected him, calling him Lord. Now, ladies, just to be clear, we are cessationists in this church. If your husband comes to you and says, God told me you're supposed to be intimate right now, um, you can say, God doesn't speak to you in this way right now. We know this. Pastor John told me. Um, this is not the way God speaks now. But God had spoken to Abraham and told him he'd be father of a nation. And Sarah, follow along. Even if her, her mind said, this is ridiculous, she obeyed and respected him, calling him Lord. The point is, ladies, if... You weave that into the tapestry of your attitude and your heart. If you take this demeanor that Sarah demonstrates here, you join a whole line of beautiful, holy women who have done the same generation after generation. What a beautiful motivation. I want to be like the ladies of old. I want to be like these wives who understood. I can have a mind of my own. I can do... Uh, you know, I'm not this soulless slave, but I do want to respect and love my husband as all the holy women of old have done. Well, between these two motivations is the practical side, and we don't have time. I'm going to do this next time. Just to give you a preview, He's going to tell her, tell the ladies to be willing to follow. That is this, this idea of obedience, being respectful. Again, we draw this from Sarah calling him Lord. Being pure. There's this pure conduct he speaks of. Be spiritual. This is a lady who is not focused on the externals. He's, she's focused on a relationship with God. And at the end, he says, be fearless, because there's going to be ladies. Some of you maybe even sit in this room and you're married to a really bad man who treats you awfully. And when he opens his mouth, it hurts. And sometimes he hurts you even physically. And he's going to teach you how to live fearless. All right, let's pray that uh, we would begin by having the kind of motivations that would be godly and honor him. Father, we pray for all the ladies here that they would learn about what it is to play out their divinely appointed role, acknowledging that, God, you set up these authority structures in human society, and it's not ours, not men or women, to buck and to change and to rebel against and to resist and refuse, but the kind of life you present to us is that of humble submission, and it's a submission that is rooted not in some culture system, it is rooted in our submission to you. So may we love you. May we worship you. May we always submit ourselves to you. Lord, I pray that this is true, especially for those ladies who are among us who have a husband who's not saved. And it's so tempting. I listed three, but there may be a host of other temptations they may face being married to a lost man. We pray that you would grant them the grace to show this kind of love for you and submission to you by living in this way with these divine motivations 
to submit to their husbands. We pray this is a picture of the gospel to them, those men and the lost people around us, and ultimately a lost world. We would validate the truth of the gospel in our lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, if you would stand with me for a benediction. This is especially for those ladies who married to lost men. Let those who trust the Lord be like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken, but endures forever. May that same Lord establish you in the gospel so that all peoples might believe and obey Him, who is the only wise God. The glory is to Him forever through Jesus Christ. 